All right, well, here we are back in the book of Genesis where we hope to stay for most of the spring. We hope to finish the book out this spring with the final section in the book of Genesis, which is about Joseph and his brothers. So we begin that in chapter 37 today. Uh, As we are getting there, I want to make you aware of two themes that are going to come up many times in the next several weeks. I want to come ready for both of these. The first is that, as we just sang, that Christ is the true and better Adam, and the true and better Isaac, the true and better Moses, the true and better David. You're probably catching on there that many people in the Old Testament resemble Jesus and point us forward to Jesus in wonderful and beautiful ways. Joseph is probably the most involved and detailed of those people. And so the first big theme you're going to see week after week as we look at him is that Jesus is the true and better Joseph. So many details in his story point us to who Jesus will be. Now, in one sense, we almost expect this because chapter 3 of Genesis taught us to expect a mighty Savior who was going to reverse all of the great problems that were brought in after we fell into sin. And then one day Abraham was told in chapter 12 and 17 and some other places that one of his descendants would be a great king who would bless every nation on earth. And then we're told that Abraham's grandson Jacob, that that mighty savior king, is going to come from Jacob's line. And now here we are dealing with the sons of Jacob. And so the big question in the the broader form of Genesis is, okay, which one of these sons is either going to be that mighty savior king or be the ancestor of that mighty savior king? And so it's not all that surprising that a figure would rise up who would point us forward to that coming savior. Then we begin to see Joseph's story unfold, and he is lied about, just like Jesus was, and he is mistreated, beaten, abused, sold for silver, just like Jesus was, thrown into a pit, just like Jesus was, pulled out of the pit, and then lied about, just like Jesus was, thrown into an even worse pit, symbolically, if you consider his descent to the dead, and then from there, lifted up to rule everyone in the world so that people from every nation gather before him, bow down to him, and receive the bread of life. Just wonderful pictures all throughout of how this man points us forward to Jesus. So little by little as we walk through, you'll see many of those, and I hope it warms your heart toward the beauties of Jesus Christ. The other theme that we see come up many times, I hope, will be a comfort to many of you. Uh, as I've already said, Joseph becomes badly mistreated. Uh, he becomes even, even abused terribly. He becomes sold into slavery Uh, He becomes lied about, he is beaten, he is stripped. So many terrible things happen to him. There's also another character we'll encounter named Tamaru, a woman who is treated very terribly as well. Uh, And so that means for the next several weeks, those of us that have very difficult things like that in our past who have experienced things like that, uh, the Lord means to, to meet us there and speak clarity into some of the confusion that comes after those terrible experiences. Uh, If you have been through something like that, uh, my guess is maybe one of the many things you feel is confusion about the whole thing. Uh, 
Uh, and that's for a number of reasons. We may get into some of that. Uh, but what the Lord intends to do is he addresses abuse and mistreatment and hatred and lies through stories like this is shine light into the darkness and bring clarity to that confusion. So I hope that what the Lord will do for you then is give you some clarity. You can walk out saying, I know a little bit more. The Lord has given me insight and he has given me some healing in the process. So be ready for those two themes to come up many times through this series. They will come up even today. Uh, The way one of them will come up is that people who have been through mistreatment, whether you were bullied in school or treated terribly by someone that you loved, uh, one of the common things that we tend to ask is, why does that person hate me so much? There is just this inexplicable, like you can think of the, the seventh grader who's being bullied and then the bully just comes around over and over and over again. And after a while, it's like, what, what did I do to you? Like, why, why are you picking on me? Why do you hate me so much? What's going on? That can be some of the confusion we have. Uh, several of us, just as Christians, are starting to feel that way about many in the world around us uh, as we see that. People in the elite pockets of culture and in the halls of the universities and in in Hollywood and some of them in D.C., uh, there's a a growing hatred for for the church. Uh, And some of us are looking at that, seeing it on social media or elsewhere, and we're we're just thinking, like, why? Why do they hate us so much? Uh, What what is going on there? Uh, Well, what's going to happen today? We start this story. Soon Joseph will be abused and mistreated, but first... We learn why his brothers, who will mistreat him, hate him so much. We see three reasons why they hate him so much. And what we're going to find along the way is that our Savior, Jesus, was hated for the same three reasons. And often, he says, Christians will be hated for the same three reasons. In fact, people whose hearts have been very darkened by Satan's influence often hate many people for these same three reasons. So if you're resonating with that, I hope the Lord will give you some insight, some clarity, and bring healing to you. Let's look at Genesis 37, the first 11 verses. When God speaks, it is a powerful thing. And we tremble with joy. And so, and we're done. I'm going to say the words of the Lord. And if you would respond with, may all flesh tremble. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his words and his dreams. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? 
Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The words of the Lord, may all flesh tremble. Through that story, the Spirit comforts despised Christians with clarity and with a beautiful picture of their Lord, Jesus Christ. So as I said a moment ago, uh, what we see in this story is why Joseph's brothers hated him. Three reasons why they hated him. And as we dive into those a little more deeply, we will find that our Lord Jesus was hated for the same three reasons. He's a perfect picture of how this can happen. He even says that the church will be hated for some of these reasons. And some of us who've been through terrible things in the past may see some parallels when people with very darkened hearts influenced by Satan begin to hate others. Why does this happen? Well, we see here three reasons that hatred grows in dark hearts. In the first uh, first verse, we just get kind of a transition from the last story to this story. Before we saw where Esau settled, he settled away from the promised land. By contrast, Jacob is going to settle in the promised land. That's the point of verse 1 there. Verse 2 begins this section properly with the words, these are the generations of Jacob. That's a formula that Genesis uses to start a new sentence, the 10th time that we've seen it. And when it says that, it means the next story is about the sons of this person. So this is the story of the sons of Jacob, which is why I say it's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Then we get into the actual story. Joseph is a young son of Jacob, and he is there serving as an assistant with his brothers out in the field, pasturing the flock. And he brings a report back to his father. And the report he brings back is a bad report. Now, it's tough to see this in the English. All we get in English is he brought a bad report. And so it's like, well, was it, a, was it a true bad report? Or did he tattle on them? Or was he being a brat? What was going on? Uh, the Hebrew is a little clearer with the nuance there in a way that we can't really see in the English. And it shows us that uh, it was not necessarily a false report, but it was a slanted report. Right? You know how when you, you've got one on somebody, you know somebody did something wrong, you can kind of exaggerate it to your boss or to your father, make it look even worse than it was and kind of use it against them. That's what Joseph did there. He slanted the story against them, not necessarily false, but slanted against them. He brings that report of his brothers to his father, and that exposes that they aren't doing a good job out in the field. It exposes their sin. And we see there, especially as we follow that thread through the rest of the scriptures, uh, one of the reasons that our Lord was hated, though he did this perfectly, uh, it was for exposing the sin of the people around him. That's one reason that hatred grows in dark hearts. When their sin is exposed, often that can lead to hatred. Jesus did the very same thing, but he did it perfectly, right? Joseph was a tattle about it. He was a brat about it. Jesus comes in his perfect holiness as light of the world, and him simply being holy exposes the sin of those around him. 
And we see this happen in many times in his stories. There were religious teachers around him, Pharisees, scribes, who were living in hypocrisy, devouring the possessions of widows. They were wolves in shepherd's clothing. He comes as a true and good teacher, stands up on a mountain, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters long in Matthew. And when it's done, the people were amazed because he spoke with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees, right? So his good and true preaching exposed the flaws in the preaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Then he goes and begins his ministry, and he's at one point in the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and a man who is in need of healing comes to be healed in the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue, the guy in charge, stands up and just says in his arrogance and lack of compassion for this man, there are six days to be healed. Come on one of those. This is a Sabbath day. We're not healing you today. That's nowhere in Jewish law that you can't heal somebody on a Sabbath. But this guy, he's a hypocritical teacher. Jesus is there among them. And guess what Jesus does? Heals the guy, all right? Now, how does that make the synagogue ruler look, right? Now, the hypocrisy and the lack of compassion in that synagogue ruler is exposed before everybody. Oh, here's what a real religious teacher looks like. He loves those in need, not like these scribes and Pharisees. Next time a similar thing happens and Jesus even confronts the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, which one of you, if you had a son fall into a well on a Sabbath, wouldn't reach down and pick him up? Of, of course, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? I'm going to do the right thing. So here he heals another man. And it even shows us there that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were indignant. They were angry at him for doing this. So we see there one reason Jesus was hated when he was on the earth. Because his purity, his good and beneficial ministry exposed the sins, the flaws, the hypocrisy, and the religious teachers of that day. So they grew in hatred for him and wound up treating him in ways very similar to the way Joseph's brothers treated him. Jesus then says in John 7, 7, he's talking about the world-hating Christians, and he says, well, yes, they hate you, but, but they can't really hate you. It's me they hate because I testify that their deeds are evil. So this is one reason even the world around us oftentimes hates the church because Jesus working through us, us simply walking in holiness, exposes the sin in the world. If his presence testifies that the deeds of the world are evil, and his presence is in us, making us holy, what's that going to do when we're still in the world? It's going to expose their sin. One way this happens is Jesus calls us to be light of the world, right? A city on a hill can't be hidden, be the light of the world. He is the light of the world. It calls us to shine into the world now. And what's supposed to happen is we do good deeds before men. They see our good deeds and they praise their Father up in heaven. And many people do that. Many people who aren't even believers see us do good things and they say, wow, look at that church. That's really incredible. I mean, I don't believe what they believe, but boy, that God really is incredible. But other people see the light shine and First John says the darkness hates the light. The darkness rejects the light. It cannot stand the light. So sometimes Christians being holy and simply doing the right thing aggravates the consciences of unbelievers, sometimes stirring them to hate us in response for our holiness. 
This is often also a common dynamic in uh, abuse situations, uh, particularly uh, in leadership abuse situations. So in like leadership of a company or in a church, uh, many stories like this circulating on the internet now, and you can hear and read of many of them, and there's a common theme in many of them. Often what happens is someone who works for someone else exposes or confronts the sin in their leader, like a member confronts or exposes sin in their pastor, or an employee confronts or exposes sin in their boss. And rather than turning from the sin, if that leader is a wolf instead of a shepherd, the leader gets the claws out and just destroys the person who exposed them. Happens even in the church because there are false teachers and there are wolves in the church. So in more concrete terms, what can happen sometimes is, uh, let's say you're working together with a number of people. Let's say you're working in a coffee shop, uh, and you know there's the cash tip jar there in the coffee shop, right? And at the end of the shift, there's four of you, and there's $100 in the tip jar, and so somebody grabs it, counts it up, and hey, guys, we've got $100 in cash tips today, dishes out 25 because there's four of you, so now you're each walking home with $25 in cash. There are systems in places like that to report cash tips to the government, right? Because the government wants to be faithful to tax you on all of that money. So you have to tell them even that you made cash, right? So I remember when I was a waiter, I would walk out the door and I would have to enter into a machine. You know, I made this much in cash tips today in addition to the ones that were recorded. So now you're walking out the door at your coffee shop that you work at and you're clocking out and you need to put in, I made $25 in tips today. What sometimes happens is people who make cash money realize the government doesn't know how much I made, so why don't I just put in $12? Now I just didn't get taxed on $13, right? And so sometimes you will have people report honestly and you'll have people report dishonestly. Now that can become sticky when you're on a four-person team and you're a believer in Jesus and you want to tell the truth. And the rest of the employees say, okay, we got 25, but we're, we're going to report 12, right? Everybody reporting 12. And, and then you're the one who says, no, I'm going I'm to do the right thing. You know, I'm going to, you guys do what you want to, but we made 25 and I'm going to report 25. Now, you being honest has exposed that they are not being honest. Now the manager can look down from the top and say, huh, they split the tips equally and one made 25 and the rest made 12. I know what's going on. And so now just your honesty has exposed the flaws and the sins of the people around you. And so they might react to that and say, oh yeah, you know what, we should just be honest. Yeah, let's all be honest. Let's all report 25. Or they may conspire together and hate you for it because you've aggravated their conscience and you've exposed their sin. So in many ways like this, when Christians dwell among the world, sometimes our holiness aggravates their consciences and brings out sometimes even a hatred for the church or for believers because the Lord is using us to expose the sin in people's hearts. This is the sort of thing that happened to John the Baptist as well. He was preparing the way for Jesus, preaching under King Herod, and King Herod basically stole his brother's wife, uh, which is a big no-no in many ways. And faithful preacher, John the Baptist, calls him out. That's what prophets do, right? They call out what leaders do. And he says, it is unlawful for you to have her. And so Herod, in response, locks him up in prison. Why? Because John had exposed his sin. 
And then down the road, Herod has him beheaded and has John's head brought to that wife and her daughter. Why did did Herod hate this man so much? A lot of complicated factors in there. One of them is that John had exposed Herod's sin. And when Satan has influence in a dark heart and then the sin of that heart is exposed, oftentimes what comes back is vile hatred for the one who exposed it. Now, there was one difference here and one nuance. Joseph will in many ways be like Jesus and in some ways be unlike Jesus. All these forerunners of Jesus are like this. The difference here is in that nuance in the language I told you earlier. It looks like Joseph slanted this report. The Lord, of course, would not do that. Christians are not to do that. So Joseph was using what he knew about his brothers against them and even exaggerating it. This is the difference. This is the thing that Christians are called not to do. But because we are imperfect pictures of Jesus, sometimes we do it anyway, don't we? Sometimes our sense of our own purity and our sense of what the world is doing around us can create a pride in our hearts. And now the way we deal with it is imperfect, like Joseph's was. And so even in his mistakes, even in his flaws, there is a call then to handle the sin of those around us the way the Bible tells us to. Uh, Galatians says, if any one of you is in sin, uh, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Joseph's trying to make his brothers look bad. What's the right thing to do? Try to better things for the brothers, right? Try to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That means that you're in a spiritual state. You're not bitter about it. You're not angry about it. You're not trying to get them burned for it. You're trying to restore them to the right, and you're doing with a tone of of gentleness and love, and they can hear that in your tone when you talk about it and when you confront it. So here is how we are called to be different from Joseph, and in many ways, our lives will be the same as Joseph's. Let's move on to the second reason in verse 3 and 4. Three and four say, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So you see two things there that go on. One, Jacob loves Joseph the most of the sons. He's playing favorites. He's got a favorite son, and it's the young one, Joseph. The other thing that Jacob does is he makes a really splendid coat. We call it a technicolored coat or a many-colored coat and puts it on Joseph in front of everybody. So now everyone sees we all have these like pretty okay coats and Joseph has the special one. So he is publicly favoring Joseph over the others implying very strongly that when it comes down to it and when dad has gone on and is buried with the fathers, it will be Joseph who is in charge because Joseph is the one who is favored. So he loves Joseph more and he adorns Joseph above his brothers, setting him apart. And it says that in response, that made his brothers hate him. So we see there the second reason that hatred grows in dark hearts and that's when someone appears more favored than them. You've probably seen it among siblings, maybe even saw it in your own family, right? When there's a sense that mom and dad love one child the most, the others tend to not like that child. 
Or you might even see in the classroom when the teacher really likes one student above the others. What do the other kids do? Teacher's pet, teacher's pet. Right, they begin to pick on that child. They begin to put that child back down out of envy and out of jealousy that that one seems to be more favored than we're favored. We see a very similar thing happen in Jesus' ministry as well. Now, Joseph is beloved by his father, and he is adorned and anointed by his father as the special one. When Jesus' ministry begins, we read about it in Luke recently. Uh, He begins with baptism, right? He goes forward, he's public, it's the first time he appears in public like this, and he is baptized. And when he's baptized, the Spirit of the Lord descends upon him in front of everybody in the form of a dove everybody can see it right and then a voice speaks from heaven and says you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased now just think for a minute if you're a scribe or a pharisee out there on that day a day like any other you know they're baptizing people and John is doing his thing and you're checking it out And what every one of these guys want is to be the favored one by God, to be the one whose God's spirit rests on, the one that God says, this one, listen to him, this is the one. And some guy who's not even a rabbi, who's not even a student under a rabbi, goes and gets baptized. And that spirit that you were longing for just an ounce of, the very spirit himself descends on that person. And then God the Father's voice from heaven says, this one. This is the one that I favor. You can see why early on in his ministry, the scribes and Pharisees hated him. Why? Because he was more favored by God. He was beloved by God. And it began to show in his abilities. He's preaching with power and everybody's saying, wow, listen to this one. Uh, It comes time to cast out demons and the Pharisees and the scribes aren't able to do it many, many times. But Jesus can So this man who's endowed with the Spirit, this man who's been adorned with the Spirit, like it's this multicolored dream coat just telling everybody, look at what this one can do. He walks around and he has power whenever he wants to, to cast out demons. But we can't do that, but he can. Does God love him more than us? What's what's going on? Does he mean we're favored than us? And so it's not all that much of a stretch in their hearts when they turn to him and they say, you know what? You cast out demons by the prince of demons. It's because you're possessed by a demon. That's why you can cast out demons. Because that that adornment from God, that anointing and being set apart from God, like Joseph was, moves them to be envious of him and moves them to hate him. There is a form of this that moves the world to despise Christians as well. And it's what we call the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, There is a sense in that doctrine that God favors us, and he does favor us, and he does love us. If you've never heard the word exclusivity like that, uh, it just means that there is only one way that you can be forgiven and become part of the people of God. It's through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way, right? So that's the exclusivity of the gospel. Now, when we preach that, what we mean is we have been given unmerited favor by God. He has brought us back into his people when we didn't deserve it. And not only that, but anybody else can have it too, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're telling them that, I hope the heart of it is God has saved me and he is willing to save you too. You can have what I have. There's only one way to get it, but you can have what I have. Often though, what people hear instead is, oh, so you're saying I'm going to hell, right? 
oh, so you're saying that like all of us, like you guys are the special ones and we're the ones who are condemned forever? And, and the heart is, no, like I don't have anything that you can't have and I want you to have it too, right? But often it's heard differently. It's heard as we're favored and you're not. And so let's just put a separation here. Uh, the same spirit that rose up between Joseph and his brothers of, oh, oh, so God loves you more than us. Oh, the father loves you more than us can aggravate those around us when we preach the exclusivity of the gospel uh, and can even aggravate that jealousy and that hatred and can turn to persecution from the world around us. This is one reason why when there is hatred from the outside world, a lot of times it focuses on that exclusivity of the gospel because there is a sense that, oh, those people think God loves them more than us. Those people think that they're the special ones. Oh, Look at Joseph. He thinks he's special. He gets the special colored dream coat. Now, by contrast, what if instead uh, the Lord, no, what if instead somebody who was very wealthy, it wasn't God, it was a human who's very wealthy, a billionaire upon billionaires, uh, gave you a billion dollars and then said, okay, uh, you can tell anybody you want to, I'll give a billion dollars to anybody who wants it. And so you're walking around telling people, this guy gave me a billion dollars. And he says, if you go ask him, he'll give you a billion dollars too, right? Nobody's going to be mad at you about that, are they? They'd be like, sweet, like, where is he, right? If I told you guys that, you'd jump and be like, where is this guy? He's giving away a billion dollars. We would not react to that and say, oh, so you're rich and we're poor. I get it, right? That's not how we'd react to somebody like that. But you take away the billion dollars from a rich person and replace it with salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord has given me this. He's willing to give it to you as well. And the reaction is different, isn't it? Why is that? Part of that is because of a sense of envy that sometimes develops, right? a sense of jealousy that can develop in the world. That can bring some clarity to some of the strange things that go on when we try to share the gospel. Why would that offend somebody? Oftentimes, it's the same jealousy as Joseph's brothers. So there's the second reason hatred can develop in a dark heart, when someone appears more favored than them. The third one comes from all of the remaining verses, from verse 5 to the end. What happens here is Joseph has two dreams, one about wheat sheaves and one about the stars. And the meaning of the two dreams is the same. Everyone else in the story is going to wind up bowing down to him. He is destined to rule everyone. And in Genesis, when a dream is doubled, that means it's fixed. It's guaranteed to happen. We'll see that even happen later. However, Joseph doesn't handle this very well either, does he? He boasts to the very people who already hate him about how he is destined to rule over them. You just want to look at him and say, oh, Joseph, that's not wise. But there he is boasting, behold, I had this dream. Behold, your sheaves bowed down to mine. Behold, the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to me, boasting in the fact that he is destined to rule over them, earning even his father's abuse. I'm sorry, not abuse, rebuke, even his father's rebuke. This brings us to the third reason that hatred often develops in dark hearts, and that's when someone threatens to surpass them. There is something that happens when someone who is currently below you threatens to pass you, and it can aggravate a certain jealousy, and a dark heart can even aggravate hatred. This is something that Richard Nixon was infamous for. 
When you're in an election against somebody, right, one of you is going to win and get the power, and one of you is not, right? And uh, so there's a bit of a rivalry going on. It gets nasty sometimes. And what was said so many times of President Nixon was he was not satisfied defeating his opponents. He had to destroy them. And that's actually what led to Watergate and led to everything that happened there and led to his resignation as a president. He was not satisfied just winning. He had to destroy anybody who threatened to ever pass him by running against him. And you hear very similar dynamics that happen in businesses, right? You can have uh, a whole class of employees that are working together. They're all peers, and then somebody's over them, uh, managing them. And one of those employees can just be a shining star, and everybody's raving about them and talk, wow, man, have you seen this? guy and what he can do. And everybody starts to feel a little threatened, like, oh, I think, I think this guy's going to pass us. And even the boss starts to think, man, I think in a couple of years, this guy's going to be my boss, right? There are many ways that a heart can handle that. Uh, one of them is to just try to ruin that guy. And sometimes in abuse stories in the church and in the business world, uh, that's exactly what happens. Somebody on the bottom threatens to pass somebody on the top, and so they get burned, right? This is one reason hatred can develop in a dark heart, when someone threatens to pass them. This is actually what will happen to all of Jacob's descendants in a few hundred years. They will all move to Egypt, and in Egypt, they will multiply greatly and become the size of a nation. So these 12 brothers are going to be their descendants, as big as a nation, living in Egypt. The Egyptians will see this, and they will say, oh, wow, they've become strong. They've become many in number. They are going to rule us if we don't stop them. What are we going to do? Let's enslave them. That's actually why the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, because they threatened to become more powerful and to pass them. A very similar thing to what happens between Joseph and his brothers here. This happens in Jesus' story, too. He comes and he has been destined and foretold that he will be the king of kings and he will rule all of the earth. So when he's born, wise men come from afar to worship him and they come across Herod. We've already talked a little about Herod. Uh, Come across the king in the region and this king sees, wait a minute, a baby born destined to rule everybody? That sounds like a threat. Right? So he sends the wise men, tries to trick the wise men into telling him where this child is so we can kill the child. And when that doesn't work, he goes on a rampage and he kills every child under two years old just to stop this one, this baby who threatens to surpass him and rule him one day. In dark hearts, the threat of being surpassed can turn into hatred and can turn even into abuse. This happens later when the Pharisees see Jesus getting popular, right? As soon as he starts to preach, everybody starts loving him. He was very popular among the masses. It was the elite people that didn't, didn't like him. And why didn't they like him? Because he was getting so popular that outside of their system, he threatened to pass them. And if you listened closely enough to his preaching, you could tell, I think he intends to rule the entire world as king. That's a threat, right? And so they rose up, conspired against him, and even killed him. This is why Satan hates the church as well. It's part of the church's story, too. In Revelation 12 and 13, 
Uh, there's a very allegorical story in which essentially Jesus is born and Satan realizes that he has lost, that Jesus will rule him forever, and that the whole church who follows him is destined to rule and reign with him. He realizes this and he storms off in anger and makes war against the church in his rage. Not to try to win, just because he's mad that he's lost. And then he stirs up in chapter 13 government elites and cultural mouthpieces to try to crush the church. Here's what we see going on all over the world and have seen for 2,000 years. What's going on behind the scenes here is Satan knows that Christ and his church are going to crush him. And so he's threatened. He knows he's going to be passed. He knows he's going to be ruined. He knows we're destined to rule over him. And so he is raining down as much hatred as he can on the church. That's why the government of Iran is working so hard to eradicate Christianity from Iran. That's why the CCP in China is working so hard to sweep Christianity out of China. And they're both failing miserably at it. Because Satan is behind that raining down persecution on the church. That means something important when... You're living the sort of life where you can sense our enemy trying to crush you. Some of us are so full of of doubts or of despair or another wave of heart depression has come or that person has mistreated me again. And you can look behind the scenes and see, man, Satan is after me, right? He wants me to despair. He's whispering every lie in my ear about how that one sin I committed can never be forgiven. Have you ever stopped to wonder why Satan would invest so much energy in trying to harm you? It's because he knows that you're destined to crush him. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why else would he bother to spend so much time harming you, trying to convince you that you're worthless, unless you were actually worth something. The very fact that he is enraged against you shows your great worth in the kingdom of God. It is because we are destined to crush him. It is because you, Christian, are destined to crush him, that he has worked so hard to discourage you, to make sure that you're mistreated, to make sure that you despair over your sin. And so in Revelation, the main message is Cling to Jesus, right? The one who conquers, I will give authority to rule. How do you withstand all of that onslaught that our enemy is putting upon you? You cling to Jesus Christ, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Here again, there is a nuance in the way Joseph handles this. He does not handle his destiny the way that Jesus handles his destiny, right? He boasts against his brothers. And we see a reminder there as Christians not to live boastfully, right? Paul even says, I don't boast in anything, I just boast in Christ, right? So he's not going to walk around and say, behold, look at this awesome thing the Lord is doing for me, or look how awesome what is happening to me is. He is going to say, Look how awesome the Lord is. Look at what the Lord is doing. His boasts are not about him. His boasts are about Jesus. 
And this is the way that Christians are called to be different from Joseph, to boast not in ourselves, to boast not even in our destiny like that to others, not to fall to pride, but to boast in Christ Jesus. So there are three ways then that hatred can grow in a dark heart. Uh, When their sin is exposed, when someone appears more favored than them, and when someone threatens to surpass them. I wonder if for some of us who have been mistreated by others, if that brings any clarity to what was going on. Not every situation is like this, but many are. Now, this is heavy stuff, and if any of you have been mistreated in that kind of way, uh, I just want to to say a few words just for you and then one word for everybody. Uh, I hope you can see there in the way that the words of Jesus Christ speak life and healing into our suffering. Many people who have been badly mistreated or abused, like I said earlier, are are confused. And the reason is that often abusive people who get by, they learn to get by by being very manipulative. They're master manipulators often. And one of the weapons they love to use is confusion. If you're confused about what someone did to you, it's probably because they want you to be confused. But the Lord of heaven speaks from his word and says, I'll bring clarity to that confusion bit by bit. And one of the ways that he heals us is by bringing some clarity. If you're thinking about a certain situation in your past and you're saying, oh, that makes a little more sense now. What you're tasting is how good the word of the Lord is and how much healing it can bring to us. And in fact, you're tasting just a little bit of the healing he will bring when he returns. And he says, there will be no more tears. He will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more pain and there'll be no more death in those days. So if you can taste the goodness of the word of the Lord, put your hope fast on him. Another thing I'd say to you is that it may be that what you need, I mean, if some of these situations are so difficult to untangle that it takes another person who can look from the outside who knows the Bible well and can speak to it. You can just, somebody you trust, somebody who knows the Bible, a counselor, a pastor, a friend who really knows the word well, and you can say, okay, let me just outline what happened to me. Do you have any wisdom or insight? Often a wise counselor can give you some of that insight and give you healing. If you need that, I'm available. Paul's available. I hope you have friends here in the church that you can talk to. And if it's the sort of thing you don't want to talk to anybody who knows you about, we have connections to some some counselors that can help you as well. Lastly, in Joseph's story, we see how, how, complex, how beautifully complex Jesus Christ really is. How can it be that the Lord of heaven would come to earth to suffer and be abused? Isn't that just an incredible thing? And to those of us that have suffered in that way, I just want you to know that that is not something the Lord looks down from heaven and wonders what it's like. Is something he looks down and says, I remember what that was like perfectly. Because uh, he's a man who knows our sorrows and is acquainted with grief. And if the Lord of heaven would come down to suffer like that for us, I hope you can see how worthy of your trust he is. Here is one who will not mistreat you if you trust him. 
Here was one who would rather suffer with you than mistreat you. And so my call to you is looking upon his death and resurrection, his death that paid for our sins, his resurrection that guarantees us life. Look to him, receive him, and trust him in faith. You can trust him with everything. So let's move to prayer now. We will prepare ourselves for the supper. And uh, if you're in need right now, I just want to spend a few minutes praying for you. Let's pray.